not too happy with the polyester uniforms. Well, they get very hot in the polyester. You know, it's not a natural fiber. <laughs> I think they would prefer cotton. Cotton breathes. I mean, imagine playing games and your team is five degrees cooler than the other team. Don't you think that would be an advantage? <laughs> they're cooler, they're more comfortable, they're happier. They're gonna play better. You may have something there, George. Oh, I've got something. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Put Me In Coach. It's a podcast about baseball, which, if you didn't know, it's a sport with bats, balls, gloves, the works. My name is Matt Coggins. And my name is Carl Mizell. And you forget, you, you forgot, bases. It bases. Has, it has oh, ba- it's right there in the name. Football, you do use your feet, uh, contrary to popular belief. <laughs> Uh, baseball, you do use the bases. They they they're making them bigger and bigger as the years go on too. So you'd think that uh, it wouldn't be so easy to forget. Pretty soon, they're just gonna be able to like leap from one to the other. <laughs> <laughs> um, how are you, my friend? I'm great. Now I'm envisioning a version of baseball where it's like the floor is lava. <laughs> baseball where you have to needs, stay on the bases. <laughs> baseball needs a what's that guy Wembyama in NBA who's yeah. like like uh the slender man we need a player like that in baseball i guess ellie de la cruz is kind of tall and gangly in that same fashion but nowhere near to that degree no goodness no i'm well i thank you for asking uh i i am about to uh drop three thousand dollars to modernize my house uh that's fun i've got to upgrade my electrical in, in in my house so i'm feeling the sting of that but i've never been happier because my lights just constantly like flicker <laughs> and everything like you can't run the stove and the oven or the stove and the dryer at the same time <laughs> not like, ideal no it's not uh but other than that expenditure i'm i'm, I'm grateful to have you know the, the the means to do so and not you know completely become you know destitute as a result of it but uh that's yeah. what's the big news in my house what's up with you oh uh, this week, I tried really hard to get my wife into Dune. I'm a big Dune fan. <gasps> Are you? Uh, we tried to watch uh, the movie and couldn't really get into it. There was a lot of pausing and question answering. And uh, I had to basically explain the lore about three times. And uh, eventually she was like, you know what? I'll read the book. <laughs> yeah. No, okay. no. Did you try to show her the uh, the Lynch one or the Denis Villeneuve remake? The new one. Yeah. The v- Villeneuve oh. one. Oh, that, well, my wife, who happens to be standing right here so I can uh, tell my daughter good night. Good night, daughter. Mwah. She is a massive fan of the remake as well. Um, but if you are a Dune fan, I highly recommend that if you've never already seen the documentary about the Dune film we almost got, Jardawaski's Dune. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen that? I haven't seen that doc. No, I should. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It, it would have been insane, and I wish we would have gotten it. Uh, but alas, we got Lynch, which was fine. Um, but the, the, the new version is magnificent and I, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry that your wife, uh, I mean, Hey man, there's, there's no accounting for taste and she's entitled to her opinion. Uh, but that's kind of a bummer because my wife is 
massive, massive fan. I will say, once they get to Arrakis, which is about the when we uh, had to pause because uh, falling asleep had happened. But once they got to Arrakis, she was like, you know, I was really starting to get into it then. I was like, okay, so you get past the lore, you learn what a Bene Gesserit is, you, you learn who House Atreides and, and the Harkonnens are, and you get boots on the ground. It is kind of where the action picks up, so I get it. We just had to hustle through that first half hour. Yeah. We're getting there. Just we will finish this movie before June sure 2 will. comes out. Absolutely. Yeah, and you had that delay. <laughs> thanks to the thanks yeah. to the strike, you got that delay. Now it's not coming out till March. But just remember, everybody, uh, fear is the mind killer. That's and the right. spice must flow. What are we talking about today? Jerseys. Jerseys. We, you, Jerseys. You yeah. You proposed a couple of ideas, uh, all three of which that I liked, but... I was like, the other two could lead down a real big negativity spiral, <laughs> and I didn't want to yeah. do. I didn't want to do that. Uh, so I wanted to keep it. I wanted to keep it light and keep it happy and talk about uniforms because you and I, I think, both share uh, an affinity uh, for the the form, the art of of jerseys. I think we, you and I, and correct me if I'm wrong, we might have a little more uh, affinity for them than most people because of our theater backgrounds. Like we understand. Yeah, for sure. You know, that that's sort of like the history that goes into it in like the, not just in terms of the history that they can acknowledge, but just the history of clothing writ large. So I'm real excited to talk about this. And we are going to dive deep into it. We're going to talk some history, talk some weird uniform trends. But before we get to all of that, we've got the baseball news. <laughs> Well, Rob Manfred opened his mouth this week and said uh, one awesome thing and a couple of really shitty things. The awesome thing was that uh, this current term, which ends in 2029, will be his last. Which was immediately undercut by everybody remembering that it would be like the next person to take over for him will probably be worse than him. So <laughs> Exactly. I think this is a good time to point out that you could go back and listen to our uh, Fuck Rob Manfred episode to see where we stand yes. uh, <laughs> in that regard. But uh, that was a common refrain in a lot of the comment sections on pieces that talked about this was like, who do you think they're going to replace him with? Like, no one good. You know, they're not... <laughs> Yeah, I, I sent you that piece. Uh, it was it was a I can't remember what blog it was, but somebody actually proposed Tony Clark, the current you know uh, head of the the players union. I was like, you think the owners are gonna want to bring in a former player slash union guy uh, to yeah, to run, especially one that's been pretty strong and not like he doesn't bend over. He's a big reason why they went on strike and and had the lockout. You know exactly, and they're gonna remember that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Them and Pepperidge Farms, they will remember. So no, it's probably not going to be Tony Clark. Um, Everything you you brought up two names in our Discord, and and the one that shows up on every list is Dan Halem, who's currently the uh, assistant. Uh, he's like the deputy commissioner of of Major League Baseball. He seems to be the early front runner, but it's again, it's five years. And Bud Selig, he actually like a couple of times I I, I saw in a couple places like he extended. He he alluded to or flat out said he was going to be done yeah. a couple times and wasn't. So there's also the possibility that Rob Manfred could not be done. But um, as as appealing as it is to get excited about the possibility of a Rob Manfredless uh, Major League Baseball, you know, same boss or new boss, same as the old boss, as it That's were. That's right. <laughs> It's from that song. Yeah, I know. That, that lyric. So I did. Um, so he he talked about some things. He, you know, he opened his mouth. He has to say something about Oakland. 
Um, there's still a lot of drama because they haven't yet solidified what's going to happen until that new stadium is built or if that new stadium will be built at all because they don't have the money for it. So he was asked about that, and he's also asked about how the league will be respecting the city of Oakland, a a city that still wants to have a baseball team. And he said... uh, We do have a major league team in the Bay Area. The Giants obviously still play there, which is not the right answer at all. No, it is. It is the it is the most Manfred answer he could have given in that moment is saying that exact thing. But fun story that I I, that you did not put in the notes is that uh, the Oakland A's appear to have had to go crawling back to the city of Oakland and possibly negotiate. Yeah. And negotiate like something uh, in the short term. But the city of Oakland is like, bruh, you're going (laughs) to. You're going to pay if you come back here. So uh, the scuttlebutt is that Sacramento could be the uh, short-term yeah. home for Oakland going forward. It but. might end up being an Arizona Coyotes-type situation yeah. like we were talking about last week where yeah. they play in a 14,000-seat stadium <laughs> because Oakland is sort of like, hey, if you want to come back to the Coliseum, that's great. Here's the rent. It's going to pay for all of our renovation costs for the next five years. Yep. It's going to it's gonna cost a lot of money to get these possum out of here. <laughs> And there are a lot of possum. <laughs> It'd be like saying, oh, oh, the Mets are shutting down. Or a better example, oh, the Dodgers are leaving town. Hey, the Yankees are right up the road. Come on. Yeah. That's like, that. that's so shitty to Oakland A's fans. Like, and nothing against the Giants. And I'm sure there is a lot of Bay Area love. And maybe some Oakland fans are going to become Giants fans after this, but that's not how sports work. You're a fan of your team. Yeah. And I know a lot of them aren't going to follow them to Vegas, but it's their team. No. And, and I and I feel a lot of sympathy, and I, I'm sure you can as well, because we're from Flint, one of the yeah. most unfairly maligned cities in America, definitely in the state of Michigan, but one of the most unfairly maligned uh, states in, in the country. I, I've, for the last 10 years, it hasn't happened so much in the last couple of years. Anytime I'd go somewhere and tell people I'm from Flint, they'll, oh, bet you can't drink the water because children oh, yeah. dying of lead poisoning and, and being irreparably damaged is, is funny. Uh, so I sympathize with Oakland because they're not San Francisco. They're another entirely different city, socioeconomically especially. Um, so I guess what I'm really trying to drive at is fuck Rob Manfred. Fuck him. Um, he also weighed in on the Jersey debacle, which we're going to talk about later, but his whole answer to everybody freaking out was, well, after people wear them a little bit, they're going to be really popular. And (laughs) I think that, you know, the players are starting to get really pissed off because they're wearing them, because they're seeing how tiny their fucking names are on the back and the quality of them is so much lesser. And the fans are getting mad because the price of a jersey to buy a jersey right now just went up and we're going to talk about it later but it went up to buy an authentic it's gone up and he's got no answers for that and he seems to just be kind of being like well that's the way it goes we nothing we can do the league in charge of the whole thing (laughs) (laughs) we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas uh, it seems to be their their mantra. No, I I would like to. I, I'm paraphrasing a, a funny comment that I saw on a defector piece about this, but somebody pointed out they're like, "Wow, you actually this is like galaxy brain level stuff by f- uh, fanatics because now they've just made the authentic jerseys as shitty as everything else they make, so now they can say, look, it's just like the real thing.' Yeah, um, which is the most fanatics way to go about things, uh, in my opinion. But it's also the reason why I think I, I finally took the, I didn't pull the trigger um, because I want to make sure that like my my antivirus and spyware is all up to date. But I almost bought some jerseys on DH. You knew exactly what I was going to say. Yes. 
<laughs> make sure uh, before I start plunking down money on DH gate um, and start getting some some jerseys because uh, daddy wants a, a Montreal Expos jersey, possibly a number eight Gary Carter. Oh, that'd be great. Oh, yeah. My DH gate batting average has gotten up to like 850 at this point. I think I've only had two that have disappointed me and they weren't even that bad. One was a Lions jersey that was slightly the wrong color. One was a Mets, uh, a black Mets jersey that the 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 uh decals seemed like ironed on instead mm. of stitched just a little bit funky but like look at this look at this red wings jersey is that oh is that one the, is that the stadium series that's the stadium series from 14 yes. right yeah yes. you would never know this was not authentic this thing is beautifully done wonderfully stitched uh the folks out in china are working great for our for our benefit so fuck fanatics <laughs> yeah no seriously that thing is gorgeous i mean it, it, it doesn't have the 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 sweater the the laces in the, up the, there the i took top. the laces out they didn't okay. quite match so i'm gonna dye them but they do Beauty. have laces it's it's literally perfect <laughs> yeah no and, and that's why and I, I i got a tip on that on reddit was uh whenever you go searching for stuff click uh make sure you filter by superior suppliers Mm. Well, we're going to talk a little more about jerseys in a bit, but uh, the the big topic we wanted to get to in the news section today was uh, as spring training has gotten underway, pitchers and catchers reported last week, now the rest of the team is starting to join. You're seeing all your favorite faces on on your your team's social media site. It's so-and-so. It's them. Yay. There are still prominent free agents like Blake Snell, Cody Bellinger, Jordan Montgomery, and more that haven't been signed by anybody. All of them? Scott Boris clients. And we've talked about Scott in the past. He is sort of the preeminent sports agent in the league. Um, and he drives a hard bargain for his clients. Always. Is he driving it too hard? Is there some kind of weird war going on between the owners and Scott Boris clients? Uh, and, you know, Rob Manfred added more fire to the flames. F- f- fuel to the fire. Fuel to the, whatever. I he, knew <laughs> He said this week uh, that he'd like there to be some sort of mandatory window, a short window for free agent signings in baseball. Uh, ideally, like a two week in in December around the week, uh, the winter meetings. And Scott Boris came in response, said, "Fuck you," and fuck the owners for even thinking that's okay. Like, no, this is so harmful to our players but it is i mean you gotta wonder what the hell's happening with some because these are some of the most sought after free agents and they still aren't on a team and games are getting played next week exhibition games but games nonetheless what do do you think uh first of all i i am immediately reminded of the one of the many classic onion headlines heartbreak it might have been click hole heartbreaking worst person you know makes excellent points yeah um because fuck you from fuck rob manfred for making me agree with scott boris on anything but that is one of the most anti-player uh things that i've ever heard uh, the commissioner say and and that's that's pretty telling um, but yeah, I, I mentioned this to you today. I, I really feel like there there's some sort of like, I don't think it's full on collusion. Uh, I don't think we're seeing another collusion situation, but I do think we're trying to see some owners in front offices try to bring, bring the, bring salaries, not back down, but back to earth, so to speak. 
because yeah. I don't think anybody wants to give Cody Bellinger six years and 120 $20 million dollars, you know, just because he had one good bounce back season. I don't think anybody wants to give an aging Matt Chapman six or seven years. Blake Snell wants thirty million dollars a year. You know, some people are saying, well, he's a two time Cy Young winner. He wants thirty million dollars. He's never gone over one hundred eighty innings in a season. Like he's, you know, when he's great, he's great. But even when he's great, he's not always that great. So I I'm starting to wonder if he's whole, you know, like if the owners are saying, no, man, I don't give a shit who these guys are. They're going to take a one year pillow deal and they're you know, maybe we'll give them a club option. This is what we're giving you. That's it. Because I think teams are starting to realize, you know, they've seen Albert Pujols' onerous contract fall off the books and Miguel Cabrera's contract fall off the books. And, and, and now they're trying to make sure this doesn't happen again. That's mm-hmm. that's what I think. You're not going to see these deals going to guys in their 30s anymore. You're going to have to be Juan Soto. You're going to have to be Fernando Tatis. You know, you're going to have to be transcendent to get these deals. And everybody else is going to have to just take one or two years short term, high, higher, higher AAV, lower tenure or lower term, excuse me. Yeah, I, it's really hard because I, I ultimately want to side with the player, but at the same time, there is the reality of not every player is worth a five-year, $100 million contract. And that's what I've been trying to argue with Tigers fans who, who think that we could grab Matt Chapman on a one-year deal. I think we talked about this last yes. week. I was like, no, that is not a reality of the sports market as we sit. There are teams that are going to offer him a long contract. A five-year contract? Probably not. But, I mean, Blake Snell apparently had an offer from the Yankees on the table that was like three years, $100 million, and he turned it down. Mm-hmm. because he thinks he can get longer and more. And I, he's a Boris client. You can't argue that there's a chance he might. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, and hey, more power to him. If, if they're willing to wait, again, this is their right, and I support their right. I just, I am starting to wonder if Scott Boris always has the best interest of his clients in mind. I, I, I feel like he might be viewing himself as this sort of, and again, this is just a wild reading of the tea leaves, but it feels like he's presenting himself as this sort of like, you know, agent of change for the players and always, you know, yeah. holding out, for, but at what cost? Like, are you doing this for you or are you doing this for them? Because a lot of other guys are already in camp with deals that they seem happy about and they're not your clients. So, yeah, and you know, Jordan Montgomery won a World Series last year and was a pretty a hand in it, you know. Yeah. Well, now all of his cohort are stretching out. They're they're working against batters. They're they're seeing their pitch tracks. They're doing all this stuff on a on a mound in the bullpen. All this stuff. Is he just sitting on his couch waiting for that call? Like that that sucks. <laughs> you yeah. want to get him on a team? Absolutely, I completely agree. All right, let's do one more story out of this mix that I thought was kind of inspirational. East Carolina sophomore Parker Bird, who lost his leg in a boating accident two years ago, becomes the first person to play Division One baseball with a prosthetic leg. He entered the game as a pinch hitter and drew a walk. I think that was awesome. And to see uh, uh, that quick a turnaround for losing your leg and getting back into baseball form, I think they said he had about 40 surgeries yeah. Um, you know, plus training with the prosthetic, that's huge. And it's not easy. Like I've I've met folks that have uh lost legs and and dealt with training themselves just to do everyday life with a prosthetic and it's not easy. And uh to then learn how to play baseball with it is that's inspirational and that's cool. So good on Parker Bird. Oh yeah, I, I think it was forty I think it was forty five surgeries in twenty two days. I I think I think is what I think is what they said, like initially in order to save the leg. And I think he's 
a below the knee, uh, below the knee amputee, if I remember correctly. But yeah, un, un, I mean, that, that's the kind of thing I immediately turned to my wife. I'm like, you need, she loves, she's not a big sports fan, but she loves good stories. And she knows that a lot of great stories come out of sports. And this is one of the best you're going to hear. I mean, he's probably, I mean, this, he's probably not going to go anywhere beyond this, but that he was able to get back out there any high level. You know, yeah. East, East Carolina is not a, you know, not a pushover in college baseball. They're a respected baseball school in, co- in, in college baseball. So, uh, but that's, that's irrelevant. He was able to do it. And he Perhaps. got on base. Yep. He got on base. <laughs> I couldn't do it. <laughs> the, the article I read was like, and bird drew a walk, which must have been bittersweet as, as it was the thing that he wasn't sure he'd ever be able to do again. I'm like, okay, this is pushing it a little bit article author, but thank you for that. That was, that was the result of an, an overworked editor going, yeah, fine. It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> your name's on the, your name's on the byline, not mine. We no don't need know. a second draft. We're good. Yep. All right. Let's move on to our main story of the week. We're talking about uniforms. So, As we mentioned previously, we've got this story with the jerseys. There's this chaos since the reveal of the new player jerseys produced by online retailer Fanatics on behalf of Nike. These new uniforms are constructed using Nike's latest model, the Victory Vapor Premier, which is very lightweight and soft, but the decals don't look nice. They're they're all heat-pressed, you know, screen-printed. Um... The pants aren't tailored. They're kind of loose and and, and not custom fit. You have to order a size. And uh, the players and fans, they're outraged. Players, because they're taking to the field in these uncomfortable, cheap, shitty-looking jerseys. And fans, because they're expected to pay more than they previously did for an inferior product. The prices have jumped about $50 for the replica jerseys. And the authentic jerseys, which I don't think have quite hit the market yet, but people are seeing prices somewhere around $450 for those. And I think, I think those might include embroidered and stitched logos, but I don't know. So you could be paying $450 for what is essentially a t-shirt with buttons down the middle. (laughs) Yeah. That's what they're fucking selling. Yeah. Man, Macklemore warned you about that back in 2012. Yeah. That's $450 for a (laughs) t-shirt. People, people uh, wanted to argue with Macklemore, but he was he was the sagest uh, of, of of them all. He knew. Um, according to reporting, players have begun taking action with the MLBPA, leading some to speculate that these shitty shirts won't be seen on the field come opening day. But you may ask, why are players and fans so precious about the uniform? How could such a small change lead to such a big? reaction. The uniform has gone through many changes in both style and substance over the years, and we here at Put Me In Coach thought it might be fun to walk you through how the baseball uniform was born and how it relates to the game today. So I'm going to take you back the furthest I think we have ever been before baseball was even invented. In the mid-1830s, somewhere in the Murray Hill area of the Lower East Side of Manhattan, a rowdy group of men calling themselves the Gotham Club of New York gained a reputation for their skills at a game called Town Ball, a precursor to what we now know as baseball. The Gothams established a book of rules in 1837, but the large group rarely followed them and the gatherings resembled something closer to a playground game than a sport. Alexander Cartwright, a volunteer firefighter for a nearby engine house and frequent player, split from the Gothams with a number of his friends who thought the group had grown too large for their facility tastes and they formed the New York Knickerbockers in 1845 not to be confused with the basketball team. (laughs) 
They established one of the first known American baseball rule books, and Congress has named Cartwright as one of the godfathers of the sport in 1953. No one knows for sure who invented baseball. Uh, what's the what's the name of the guy that Cooperstown says it is? Oh, Abner Doubleday. Abner Doubleday probably didn't invent baseball, or might not have even existed. Um. Alexander Cartwright is among those that people think are at least one of the earliest people that wrote down a rule book and established a group of players that regularly played baseball. Now, they didn't just invent baseball. The Knickerbockers basically invented everything about it that we know. The rules, the positions, the umpires, and, of course, the uniforms. They were the first organized baseball team to take the field in matching outfits. Blue wool pants, white flannel shirts, and straw hats a proud uniform inspired by the fraternal clubs such as the fire department or the militias. They wanted to look fashionable, respectable, high class, and intelligent, and avoided lower class looks like cotton or denim, despite how unbearably uncomfortable baseball must have been in wool pants. I found that very interesting. It was kind of seen as a gentleman's sport. Like, they wanted to look nice when they played this game that we now know to be very, like, you're sliding around in the dirt, you're jumping at balls and sliding in the grass. Oh, yeah. It was it was a wildly different sport. Do you remember uh, in, I don't remember what they named the building, uh, the, the classroom office building at U of M, uh, up on the, I think it was the third floor, right by the elevators there, they had the Flint Lumberjacks, the, uh, like, the, the historic baseball team that was in Flint. They had yeah. that uniform on that mannequin that yeah, thing yeah, yeah. like you could just walk by it and it like you could almost feel like a gravitational pull the the the, <laughs> the, the wool was so heavy yeah. like can you imagine wearing that shit like on a, a sunny day in july and it's 90 degrees and you just want to die that's why the game was so wildly different nobody wanted to move in those uniforms yeah just standing and sweating in wool <laughs> all over wool so Cartwright's team barnstormed around New York City, matching up against their old rivals, the Gothams, and a parade of other amateur teams in town, and baseball began to spread like wildfire across the country. And due to their influence, so did uniforms. Pretty much because the Knickerbockers did it, everybody was like, oh, we want to have uniforms too. We all got to match on the field, of course. So by the end of the 1850s, most teams throughout the country adopted the Knicks look, including the collared white shirt, often with a buttoned-on shield, in the middle that would display their team logo, and long pantaloons. Although these proved to be a tripping hazard when trying to run around the bases, we're talking like this is an era where pants were flooded. <laughs> uh, so players would like grab smaller belts and tie up the ends of their, their trousers with belts so that they weren't tripping over themselves. And then, by the grace of God, Cincinnati's club adopted knickers in 1867, which served the dual purpose of comfort and displaying the trademark vibrant red stockings they wore. Many teams would embrace the stocking color movement to help differentiate the teams on the field. Red stockings, as they became to be known, were the first. They weren't just the first team with these badass socks, they were also the first all-professional baseball club. At a major turning point in baseball, the Reds toured the country on the brand new transcontinental railroad and went undefeated in the first major barnstorm by 1871 the national association of baseball players was formed and by 1876 the national league professional baseball players were finally organized into one league changing the game 
forever. And the people serving as the blueprints were the same ones that were sort of exemplifying what you were supposed to wear on the field. And the red stockings, as I, if I can take a minor aside, they moved to Boston prior to the founding of the National League. Now, you may be thinking, oh, of course, the Boston Red Sox. That's where it comes from. Well, no, because this team would eventually rename themselves the Boston Braves and then move to Milwaukee and then move to Atlanta. So <laughs> through many iterations, the team we're talking about is actually the Atlanta Braves. The present-day Reds, Cincinnati Reds, formed in 1881 with the American Association, and the present-day Red Sox were founded in 1901 with the American League. However, yeah. they all came out of this Red stocking movement, which all those teams still wear to this day. Yeah, and, and the Pittsburgh Pirates around this time were famous for their red and white that they were like white socks with red stripes and that was like the red stripes on the white socks was sort of like uh, a symbol of 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 the pirates like it was something neat fun story about the cincinnati reds did you know they changed their name briefly in the 50s oh we're gonna get to that oh oh i should have read the script <laughs> a teaser uh and you'll find out why listener it's funny and sad <laughs> Um, now, as we previously covered in our episodes on the Cleveland Spiders, the 1880s saw the emergence of several professional leagues to rival the National League, including the American Association. Hearing wind that the AA would have a standard uniform, the National League decided to hand down an official clothing standard for all teams, which is revolutionary. We're talking white pants, white belts, white ties, and their stockings would correspond to to their team. So the Chicago White Stockings wore white, the St. Louis Browns wore brown, etc., etc. But the most fascinating thing that the NL decided to do was that each player was going to have multicolored silk shirts with a color code representing their positions on the field. <laughs> For example, a second baseman, regardless of the team, the second baseman was going to wear orange with black stripes while the shortstops were going to wear solid maroon, and the third baseman wore blue with white stripes. This was universal across the league. I believe it was 14 teams. All of uh, Every position was wearing the same color. Players and fans alike found this incredibly confusing and dubbed them clown costumes, because they might as well have been. Agreed. They were dropped mid-season. <laughs> One thing they kept was the colored stockings. They really loved those. The turn of the century saw... Many revolutions in uniform styles alongside the changing landscape of the baseball world. Pinstripes debuted with a few teams in 1888. The Giants premiered collarless jerseys in 1906. And soon, teams began to experiment with player numbers on the jersey. The first use of the practice came in 1907 when the manager of Pennsylvania's Reading Red Roses of the Atlantic League wanted an easy way for anyone in the stands to know exactly who was on the field. Numbers came to the majors in 1916, first on the Cleveland Indians' sleeves, and then soon the Yankees' backs. Familiar logos such as New York's overlaid N and Y and Detroit's Old English D were soon stitched on the breast. And by 1920, the general form of the average baseball uniform as we know it had taken shape. Collarless shirt, pants that were knicker-shaped, long socks, and a baseball hat. All the teams would follow the Yankees and Indians' lead in using numbers on the back of jerseys in, by 1932. The Yankees would also be the first to retire a number, number four, for Lou Gehrig, after he was diagnosed with ALS in 1939 and subsequently retired. The Yankees have retired the most numbers of any club, with 21 numbers honoring 22 players. Eight is retired twice for Yogi Berra and Bill Dickey. The sheer number of retired numbers, say that a couple wow. times fast, <laughs> 
the sheer number of, re- of retired numbers has caused a logistical problem of leaving very few available for active players, and the team has even requested that the league allow them to no longer issue numbers for managers or coaches. <laughs> wow, greatness does come with a price, and that price is running out of numbers, apparently. I mean, it's funny. Most stadiums have retired numbers as a feature. Even the oldest the oldest teams in the league have it as a feature of like an of a wall of their stadium, right? Mm-hmm. The Yankees have a goddamn park in the middle of the park. <laughs> yeah. That you can walk through and see all of their retired numbers and all of their monuments. Yeah, that's what you get for being up your own ass. Oh, hey guys, let's retire this number. Let's show everybody how great we are. Now <laughs> now everybody just wears no- nothing. They go back to the original days of no numbers. It is funny that they're the best player on their team right now is number 99. It's yep. like, ah, fuck it. We'll just start at the end and work our way backwards. <laughs> Uh, now that we have the baseball look, here's where the uniforms start to get fun. Teams began experimenting with a contrast between home and away uniforms, pioneered by the Brooklyn Superboss, who wore blue on the road. Soon it became common for the road team to wear gray or black to stand out from the home team, which was all in white. Pinstripes became more common, but one team embraced them as part of their identity, the Yankees, of course. And legend has it, that they added the pinstripes to make Babe Ruth look slimmer. Mm-mm. Now that's not true. Uh, <laughs> I just I read that on several things before somebody pointed out they had those pinstripes a good couple of years before Babe Ruth joined the team. It is funny though. It is, yeah. It, it, and, and he also didn't really start bulking up until you know a couple of years down the line. Like he was, yeah. You know, once he got to New York and started getting the big contracts, started eating. Yeah, well. I saw a video of him, a video of Babe Ruth the other day. It was wild. Uh, but it was when he was with the Red Sox and he looked way smaller than any other video I've seen of him. Um, Not to be outdone, the Giants and the Dodgers started to experiment with a checkered pattern and wild colors on their uniforms. The Giants played most of their road games in the 1910s with a baseball lumberjack look. It was like a checkered flannel pattern that was purple and orange. Very bizarre. Their team colors are black and orange, so that was already... The purple was an interesting choice, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. I'm, I'm, I'm just as fascinated. <laughs> Throughout this period, jerseys and pants were still made of wool, as we discussed earlier. Even if the players are starting to look like the baseball players we imagine today, they more certainly were still roasting in the sun. You got to think Babe Ruth sweating his ass off <laughs> in a wool costume, in a costume not unlike what I wear to go walk my dog outside in weather like this in February. Uh, however, as we start to approach the modern age and synthetic fabrics hit the scene after World War II, uniforms were able to be constructed with wool, nylon, or orlon blends that halved the weight of the garment and also made it less prone to shrinking when they were washed. Today, all jerseys are typically made with polyester or a cotton poly blend and have trended lighter and more synthetic as time goes on. I Don't hold me to it, but I'm pretty sure whatever they make these new Nike jerseys out of is probably mostly polyester and spandex. Yeah, and that's sense. all synthetic. Um, the Pittsburgh Pirates, who we're going to talk about a lot in this episode because they are equally notorious throughout their history, but especially in the 60s or the 70s and 80s for their interesting uniforms, equally as much as their extreme cocaine use. (laughs) Now, they debuted a bold new look in 1970 that would soon catch on across the league. A light cotton nylon buttonless pullover jersey combined with beltless pants. I believe they had an elastic band built into the pants. With this radical new change, uniforms would be form-fitting, light, 
and breathable, transforming the look of the baseball player for a generation. The Reds were the last to abandon the pullover in 1993, although the shape of the uniform with tighter pants, tighter jersey, all that would pretty much stay in vogue until about the 2000s when really baggy clothes started to become more in fashion. But that was sort of the look. And you think about a 70s or 80s baseball player, everything is very small, very tight, and bright. Now, a different kind of uniform revolution came in 1960. And this is sort of the last big change that uniforms go through. The Chicago White Sox debuted jerseys featuring their players' names. This was relatively unheard of in all sports prior to 1960. Football would follow suit prior to any other baseball team, and it became way more common for football players to have their names on their jerseys. Most of the teams in the new American Football League wore their names and numbers on their back. The Raiders specifically uh, used both first and last names. <laughs> if you look at old, I guess you could fit because you had those giant shoulder pads, but it yeah. would be like John so-and-so on the full back. Um, Except Fred Belitnikoff. He could not have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, soon, nearly the entire MLB had names on the back of their jerseys, save, of course, for the Yankees. That still hasn't changed. I doubt it ever will. Uh, the 60s were also a time for the vest style of jersey, so this led to a very funny problem and funny solutions uh the cubs were the first to debut the vest in 1940 and it had really caught on by a couple teams in the 60s it was problematic for player names unless they were about four characters long so it, it, there were some interesting solutions the reds would display the name under the number but that looked weird uh the a's opted to have first names or very short nicknames above the letter i mean we're talking like it is the space between your shoulder blades so these nicknames had to be like lump or funk, or fish. <laughs> and this has been, I, as far as I know, if you are able to lobby the league correctly, if you ask pretty please, they'll let you put whatever you want on the back of your jersey. Uh, players have opted for nicknames or other weird titles over the years. I saw a guy that put just boo on the back of his jersey to respond to all the hecklers he was getting. Um, occasionally, jerseys would include first initials to differentiate players of the same last name. Although that is more common in football. You don't really see it too much in baseball. And I saw like, okay, what are the best examples of like players with the same names playing on the team? What could be a better example than Ken's Griffey or Cal's Ripken? father-son duos who were juniors and seniors. They didn't put junior and senior on. It was just Griffey, Griffey, Ripken, Ripken, you know? Um, Ichiro famously used his first name just as he did in Japan. And as jersey technology has advanced, there is still a challenge of having a long name. Gerard Saltamakia, Saltalamakia, Saltalamakia. He played for seven teams in his career and often challenged these clubs he joined to curl his nameplate around his number. He at the time had the record for longest name. That is now held uh, in, in uh, current player by Christian Encarnacion Strand of the Reds. It goes Encarnacion dash yep. Strand all <laughs> around his jersey. I would have loved it if, in an alternate universe, the former Pittsburgh Steelers fullback Chris Fuamatu Maafala uh, played baseball instead of football. <laughs> that would have been great. Although now, with these new Fanatics jerseys, they're making the, the names so tiny, teeny tiny. <laughs> what is it going to matter anymore? Chris F. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, the one, the one like up-their-own-ass thing the Yankees do that I actually am like, all right. I like that they don't put names. I, that is a piece of tradition that they have that I actually like. I do find it funny that they do sell official gear 
that have player names on the back. So it's also, it leads to some Yankee fans turning up their nose. Like if you ride the subway, you're going to a game and you see somebody with a two jersey, you know who that belongs to. Yeah. But it'll say on the back, it'll say Jeter. And so, so many Yankees fans are like, not a real Yankees fan. They would know different. Yeah. And then you got that one guy who gets a, an authentic jersey with the number two on it, but then he puts a name on it and it says, yeah, Jeets. <laughs> Just sure. Google it. Just Google it. <laughs> um. So that that is basically the story of the jersey. And... I, I found it harder to make a linear history because there were so much more things to talk about. So the rest of this is just fun stuff that I learned about the history of the baseball uniform. I want to I, right now, if, if, if any of this is interesting to you, as interesting to you as it is to us, I highly recommend I own a copy of the book. Go out and get a book called Winning Ugly by Todd Radom, R-A-D-O-M. It is a, a visual history of the ba- uniforms in Major League Baseball. It is a great coffee table book. It's a great conversation piece. It's fun to flip through. If if this is your jam, go get it. Go get a copy of that book. In general, I think it'd be really nice to see what the fuck we're talking about because some of these jerseys, especially the ones coming up, are wild. And that book is definitely a fantastic visual aid. Yeah, I'm gonna put together. Um, if you if you don't already follow us on TikTok or Instagram uh, at Put Me in Pod, I am gonna put together a video. Uh, sometime this week. I've got a lot of work travel this week, but I'm going to put something together and I'm going to highlight some of my personal favorites. Uh, Matt, if you want to just like throw in the Discord at some point, like some of your faves, I'll highlight yeah. those too. Hell yeah. So to start us off, here's a fun fact. The New York Yankees and the Los Angeles Dodgers slash Brooklyn Dodgers before they moved, they wear uniforms which have changed very little since the 1930s. And the third team, the Detroit Tigers, have worn essentially the same home uniform during that span. Although Tigers fans like myself note that it made a very important and ugly change in 2016 that I won't get into. But only the Tigers, Yankees, White Sox, and Nationals retained the once common practice of placing the cap insignia on their home jerseys. Which is fine. I mean, that is, that yeah. is the old school baseball look and they are the only teams that still kind of hold on to that but again like those three teams the yankees dodgers and tigers wear basically the same thing they always have in their hundred year history wow i had no um, I, I genuinely i genuinely had no idea like it didn't occur to me that there were that few teams that did that yeah and it's kind of funny like you think about how home jerseys work nowadays and it's sometimes alternates will do the classic uh breast patch but a lot of them are kind of moving away from that style MLB managers are the only coaches in American professional sports that suit up in uniforms like the players. This stems from the origins of the role as an active player elected as team captain, which grew into a non-rostered person over time. There isn't really a rule, like a, a rule that says managers must wear uniforms in the rule book, but there are a couple rules that basically say if you're going to ever put feet on the field, you have to be an umpire or you have to be in uniform. And so that's generally how that rule is interpreted is that anybody that will ever step onto the field has to be in uniform. Connie Mack was the last major league manager to wear a suit in the dugout until his retirement in the 50s. In contrast to the uniform wearing managers, Mack rarely ever stepped out onto the field. So he'd usually send a uniformed cohort onto the field to, to do any kind of, if he tried to talk to a player, talk to an umpire, pull somebody. And I found that very interesting. And obviously today you see football coaches will be in windbreakers and khakis. Hockey coaches will be in suits. 
baseball managers will be dressed the exact same way, except they probably won't be wearing a cup. Yeah, I, it, 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 more even more recently, the uh, Dallas Cowboys back until like the mid '80s, uh, when Tom Landry was their coach, he would. Uh, he still wore like a, a a nice hat and a suit on the sidelines. So mm-hmm. football gave up the ghost uh, more recently than baseball. But football is a much younger sport, so that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, this is a segment called "Shine Bright Like a Dodger." Got a little fun with the names of these. In 2011, the Dodgers debuted a throwback uniform that featured powder blue pants and jerseys. The vintage Brooklyn script across the chest and a classic Brooklyn B on the hat. Now you might be curious about that because I just said about five minutes ago that the Dodgers haven't changed their uniforms since they debuted about 100 years ago. But it's not quite true. This throwback was inspired by a forgotten look that took to the Ebbets Field in the 1940s and briefly caught on around the league, a shiny, swishy, satin uniform. During this time, stadium lighting started to become more and more common and night games started to get played. So the Dodgers wanted a way for their players to be seen better from the stands. I mean, these aren't, we're, we're, t- we're talking the most primitive of spotlights that are taking the fields here. So if you want your players to stand out and literally shine from the field, satin uniforms, powder blue satin uniforms. Three uniforms made the rounds between 1943 and 1949. A classic white with blue Dodger script, uh, powder blue with white script, and eventually a dark blue or Dodger blue alternate for the road games. And they are beautiful. I don't know if my visual aid worked in the notes, Carl, but it, yeah. they're kind of badass. It, 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 it does. And I mean, I am a sucker for a powder blue uni. One of my all-time favorites, uh, the Montreal Expos, road jerseys, the old Philadelphia Phillies, powder blues, Kansas yep. City when they were the powder blues, the Brooklyns. They're, it's just such a nice color. Even in, I know we talked hockey a little bit. The uh, the first uh, winter classic or stadium series, the Pittsburgh Penguins, when they rocked the, the, the powder blues. Oh, so good. I wish the Tigers could find a way to like make that legitimately yeah. work because I, I just love powder blue on a uniform. They look a little bit like pajamas. Uh, oh no! They, yeah, the shape is hideous, um, <laughs> but the the color is just in 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 the script across the chest is just clean. And now for a segment called the Cincinnati Red Scare. Yes! Anti-communism was all the rage in the 1950s. A period known as the Second Red Scare led by Joseph McCarthy's fear campaign directed at anyone remotely associated with communism, leftism, the Soviet Union, or just the color red. Cincinnati's Reds, one of the oldest constant teams in the National League, were hilariously victim to this trend. The word Reds, which had been part of their logo, it was a C with Reds in the middle, that had been part of their logo since the 1912. Since 1912. It was removed during the height of McCarthyism in 1954, and the team began to go by the Red Legs. It's amazing they even still wore the color red during this time. They were that fucking petrified of being associated with communism just because they were called the Reds. Uh, They returned to their traditional uniform name and logo by 1961 when the Red Scare went out of vogue and McCarthy's popularity dwindled. Today, the Reds play at Great American Ballpark and host the first game of the year complete with Air Force demonstrations and patriotic visages, yet it's unknown what their ties might be to the Communist Party. That is how prevalent the Red Scare was at that time. Baseball in 1954 was fucking everything. It was still like America's pastime, and yet its oldest team, the Cincinnati Reds, were still like, fuck it, we (laughs) we can't be associated with that. One one shitty senator got uh, 
America's oldest baseball team uh, or oldest active baseball team at that time uh, to change their name. Insane. Yeah, like imagine if Ted Cruz started investigating sports teams about wokeness. <laughs> Actually, I don't want to give him any ideas because I feel like that's I, that, he might do that. <laughs> Ted, we know you listen. <laughs> so the 70s and 80s were a time of wild uniforms and not just for the pirates. A revolution led by the embrace of synthetic fabrics made it possible for all these teams to let their imaginations run wild. Synthetics were cheaper, but also took to dye better, allowing for bright and colorful uniforms that looked awesome on fancy new color TVs that were spreading across the country. Baseball games were getting televised more and more. The Braves debuted a beautiful blue and white look, similar to their City Connect uniform today. The Astros had their rainbow sunset design, which pushes the boundaries for what a baseball uniform should look like and i love them i love them they look Me like too. a uh, uh doritos taco flavored uh <laughs> look you know the same color palette <laughs> yeah this is when the athletics embraced their bright gold and col- kelly green uniforms at one point they had a full green or a full yellow or a gold uniform they'd mix and match them depending on if they were home or away the Padres went for full piss yellow jerseys and pants, some poo brown jerseys for road games. They were having fun with the poo and pee color palette. With such inventive and colorful uniforms scattered across the field in those days, it's a shame that our nation's jersey designers put the cocaine down in favor of the plain and colorless look the 2000s brought. Bring cocaine back to baseball, damn it. Yes, less roids, more coke. Speaking of things I miss in baseball... Two tickets to the gun show. For whatever reason, the 90s saw the return of the sleeveless or vest-style jerseys, first introduced by the Reds and the brand-new Marlins in 1993. They were tailored a little different than their 60s counterparts. They didn't, they weren't like tank top style. These came fully onto the shoulders. They were wider. The armholes were a little smaller. They had more of a look of a cutoff sleeve than a tank top or a vest. Uh, some teams such as the Angels or the Blue Jays had faux vests or regular ass jerseys that just had alternate colored sleeves that would match their undershirts. The Rockies were the last to retire a sleeveless look, their black vest alternate in 2021. So right now we don't have any vest-wearing teams, and it's a damn shame. Last summer, Luke Voigt, playing for the Syracuse Mets, ripped the sleeves off of his uniform, came out there with his guns a-blazing, and people went wild. People crave the guns. Unleash them, Nike. My uh, my high school team had vest unis. They were yes! sweet. They're sweet. Yes. Now, did you play with an undershirt or did yes. you let those guns fly? Okay. I had no guns. <laughs> I, well, had, I was. Uh, I've I was only a, known you in your guns era. So. <laughs> yes, I, I am a guns era guy now. Now, but no, I was more akin to like uh, I looked like more of a Cody Bellinger. I was about as tall as I am now, uh, and I probably weighed about a buck seventy, buck uh, seventy five my senior year. So I was uh, a wisp of a a player. Well, you had guns in spirit. And you had the vest, and that's all that matters. I had heart guns. Guns in my heart. So here were a couple of the wackiest looks, because I I did some research into, like, what were the worst, ugliest designs ever? And I looked it up, and every article I kept coming across was, like, 10 years old, and 80% of the jerseys that they had on on these slideshows were awesome. And I was like, what? Like, the first Devil Rays uh, jersey. I was like, no, that's awesome. Why why do you say that's ugly? You're stupid. Um... (laughs) I said to my phone. <laughs> yeah. 
So these aren't even, I guess, ugly uniforms. These are just kind of weird ones that I thought were fun. Uh, the White Sox debuted a new uniform in 1976 that featured short Hollywood shorts, basketball-style shorts, instead of the traditional baseball pant. They looked a little goofy, but the players found them pretty comfortable in that hot August weather, and they brought a bit of good luck and packed the stadium. They loved them. They only wore them for three games. They were never seen again. Shorts in baseball. They looked really cool. They did. I loved them. Turn ahead the clock. This is a infamous moment in baseball history. In the late 90s, inspired by a by a one-night-only promotion from the Mariners, all but eight teams in the MLB donned futuristic uniforms, meant to be an ironic send-up of the throwback uniforms and set in a distant time of 2021. <laughs> all of the uniforms were gaudy, bold, and pretty bizarre cardinals for instance instead of birds on a bat it was robots the mets were the ones that went all out they changed their name to the mercury mets they imagined themselves as a sort of invading force anytime that they announced players on the scoreboard it would be like some kind of ridiculous alien name or whatever um the players wore chrome cleats the umpires were clad in silver uh ballpark advertisements were were playing into this where it was like futuristic uh i don't know beer ads i don't know um the uniforms were derided and most of them were pretty ugly i won't lie Uh, a lot of them mostly were just a gigantic logo over the bottom third like that was it some of them had fun some of them were pretty ugly i yeah these these were all this is where you and i part ways i i i pretty much universally hate all of them because they all had that sort of like in the future baseball players will wear chrome cleats and umpires will be robots and they got it half right yeah i think one of the weirder things almost all of them had like the number but then the name down the side of the number vertically and that's just like a ridiculous change like why even bother um most of them have kind of gathered a cult following though seattle and kansas city donned them again for their 20th anniversary of that game in 2018 and the mets are set to do a mercury mets jersey giveaway this summer so there's still fans of those jerseys out there wow um this was a fun one in 1952 pirates farm affiliate the denver bears donned an interesting new uniform that appeared to have a large white square across the bottom torso and legs why so that when lined up correctly the square would represent the strike zone to the umpire's eye <laughs> so I, I guess when a pitcher throws the ball and he stands straight that will show the umpire exactly where the strike zone's supposed to be i'm not did it work it. I don't know. Uh, in 2012, the Tampa Bay Rays debuted an interesting jersey concept, the Fauxback. It looked very much like those funky and colorful jerseys of the 70s worn by the likes of the Padres or Astros, complete with a shining pop art sun and pulp style script across the chest. There's just one issue. The Rays weren't around in the 70s, and when they debuted in the 90s, they were known as the much more badass Devil Rays. But fans liked the new look, as it was a fresh contrast to the bland, regular jerseys the team wore. Nonetheless, they were retired after the 2018 season. Fucking travesty. These things, are th- th- these are some of my absolute cool. favorites. Love them. I love the font. I love the colors. I love everything about them. I think as far as the Rays look goes, I never liked that they changed from Devil Rays, an animal, to Rays, the sun. It's stupid. <laughs> um, but that jersey at least kind of embraces the sun motif. Yeah. I don't like their new shit. Don't like them. And finally, uh, we even want to get into this. Let's talk about hats. Yeah. <laughs> Might as well. We'd be remiss if the conversation about the baseball uniform didn't at least touch 
on the sport's signature cap. Baseball uniforms have included hats since the beginning, typically with a brim to shade the eyes of the player while taking the field. The aforementioned Knickerbockers wore full-brimmed straw hats, but other styles of hats such as boating, cycling, jockey, or flat tops were pretty common. The modern baseball cap made its debut with the Brooklyn Excelsiors of the 1860s. A tight crown with a button on top and a small front-facing floppy brim, dubbed the Brooklyn style, which is... An evolution of the Peck and Snyder number one hat with a similar form. You know, the newsboy cap isn't that different. Just it's the baseball cap that at that time was a little floppier. As MLB took shape and uniforms evolved a standard, teams would gravitate to the pillbox variety of the Brooklyn style, which was round around the sides but flat on top. And around the turn of the century, team insignias and mascots would be stitched into the hat as well. The Braves were the first in 1894 with a monogrammed B for Boston. And the Detroit Tigers were the first to include a mascot, a red tiger on a black background, in 1901. The Tigers would replace the mascot in favor of the traditional insignia, the Old English D, uh, right here, in 1904. (laughs) It's pretty much unchanged for 100 years. Yeah, I think the last change they really made was making the D on the road hats orange. Yeah, that's true. And I think they're the only, well, for a while, they were the only team that had a road hat, if I remember correctly. Hmm, I don't know. I might not. My research didn't dig that far. No, it's fine. I I could be talking out of my ass. So in 1940, latex rubber was the secret ingredient that made the baseball cap what it is today, providing the material to stiffen and transform the bill to fully protect the player's eyes and add a little more structure to the crown. New Era Hat Company made their first on-field cap for the Cleveland Indians, eventually tinkering and toying with the style until the invention of the 5950 in 1947, which would soon become the standard for a ball cap. New Era was also on the forefront of the consumer market, offering legitimate field-quality fitted hats for the average Joe by 1980. MLB made them their official hat maker in 1993, and the only real change to their style since the 50s was changing the hat's material from wool to polyester in 2007. And this was around the time that they standardized the underbills to be the same color of the hat or uniform, or a uniform black. Uh, It had been a tradition to color the underbill green or gray to reduce strain on the player's eyes, although science didn't really back that theory up, so that's essentially why they stopped doing it, I think. I can't I can't believe the 5950 has been around that long. That is where I notice inflation the most is when I was in high school I used to I wanted a hat of every team and I remember going to the local sporting goods store and getting a, 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 an authentic fitted hat for 20 bucks. Holy shit. Yeah, I'm that old, but uh, I, it might have been 25. I feel like it was 20, but now I think it's like 50 bucks. I wear the 3930s myself, but I like the the style better and the fit better. I wore a 47 brand cleanup. That's oh, my yeah. favorite style. One second. All right, so there's one notable exception to the gradual movement towards the contemporary ball cap. For whatever reason, I'm going to assume cocaine. We're talking about the Pittsburgh Pirates again. (laughs) They brought back the pillbox-style cap in 1976 to celebrate the country's bicentennial. Other teams dabbled in that same look to be like, hey, uh, America's 200 years old, baseball's been around for a while, this is fun, a celebration. The difference is the Pirates kept that look around for 10 years. They famously donned these bizarre eyesore of a hat. Uh, Gold with black stripes and logo for away games, black with gold stripes logo and like a million stars uh, for home games. And they won the World Series, the 1979 World Series wearing these ugly ass hats. So (laughs) I I love the unis, but I hate the hats. They are so ugly. 
<laughs> just it's it's very 70s i guess i don't know it's it's a very it's a very thing you'd wear uh if you're on cocaine yeah they no were. The, the, I mean, a lot yeah a lot of cocaine um that's the night those uniforms were designed the night they ran out of cocaine in pittsburgh that's how <laughs> that's how much cocaine those people were doing but i think the home ones would have been okay if you took the stars off if you'd have gone black with the yellow stripes kept the shape but got rid of the stars i think they'd have been okay the road ones are too yellow that's too much yellow yeah but i think they could have gotten away with it so tall and and boxy it's very bizarre yeah i mean i i like it but i understand it's one of those things where i'm like i like it but i understand why most people don't so the grand story that i told here is basically to say baseball uniforms have been changed in in you know, material and color, but for the most part, they've been the same thing since the early 1900s. And for the league to do something like they have in this drastic way to change both the material, the the look, the numbers, everything right under our noses in an off season, it's a little bit of an insult, especially to the players. I assume. Oh yeah, I I, I don't I don't blame them one iota. I don't blame them one bit. Like, I mean. I just play like amateur baseball and if something doesn't feel right, it, you notice it and it bugs the hell out of you. Now trying to imagine doing that for millions of dollars in front of tens of thousands of people, like when you're a professional athlete, finely tuned machine that you are, you want everything to feel right. I understand why Chris Sale carved up those uh, White Sox jerseys that one time he didn't want to wear the throwbacks. I love those throwbacks, but maybe they don't feel right. So I, I think that Fanatics has made the mistake of pissing off the wrong people this time, the actual uh, actual players. So I don't think that whatever is going on with these uniforms are, is long for this world. We'll have to see. Uh, opening day is a month and a half away. Oh. And who knows if we'll see these ugly-ass uniforms by then. I hope not. Same. Just bring back this, the stitching and the names. Make the names a normal size. Like If you're going to heat press them anyway, make them a normal size. Yeah. I want to see what the player is. Anyway, uh, that is the history of jerseys and uniforms and hats and cocaine. <laughs> How they all meet. <laughs> Carl, any parting words? No. Uh, cocaine's a hell of a drug. I've never done it. I'm worried what it might turn me into if I get my hands on some sewing needles and uh, a dream. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have nothing. Uh, you, once again, phenomenal job. I always love when you, you take the lead on these episodes and, and you always you. fill it with, with joy and information and cocaine. And Well, yeah. It, it always comes back to that, right? Yeah. Uh, check us out on our website, folks. Leave us a review. If you listened and you enjoyed us, we're going to keep doing this week after week, but it makes it all the more better if we know you're listening and enjoying it. And, you know, if you got any suggestions for us, any topics you'd like us to cover, any deep dives... Some of this stuff we just, hey, what do you want to talk about this week? Oh, this. And then write 3,000 words on it. So it happens. Uh, so let us know. Otherwise, we will see you next week for another episode of Put Me In Coach. Put Me In Coach is an Arctic Sounds original podcast hosted by Matt Coggins and Carl Mizell. Theme music is by Quack Quack Seatback. Edited and produced by Matt Coggins. Check out the footnotes of this episode to see links to all the great highlights, articles, and sources we mentioned on the podcast today, as well as the full theme song and ways to get in touch with us. For more, find us on Twitter and Instagram at PutMeInPod or at our website, PutMeInCoachPod.com. Put Me In Coach.